you're listening to The Parent Classroom, a space for quick conversations on how to nurture your child's education. I'm your host, Komal Shah, a former teacher turned consultant who fundamentally believes that every parent has the power to raise their child consciously within the K-12 schooling system. I cannot wait to bring you on this journey. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Parent Classroom. I am so thrilled today because I love bringing not only former educators, but also people who are just doing some badass work in their field. And so I'm excited to introduce actually a USC alum, Saba Kidway. And I'm going to go ahead and talk a little bit about what she does. So Saba believes culture of innovation begins with a culture of empathy. She has been a high school science teacher and now also an education executive at Apple. She works to work works with organizations to design schools that give young people the mindset and skills to thrive in workplaces and as global citizens. Saba is also a fellow podcaster of Designing Schools and also has released a documentary based on her research on design thinking in K-12. Welcome, Saba. Thank you for having me. Yes, how's your day going? Really good, really good. It's actually funny because I was just working with my cousin who is um, a first-year student in college and just listening to him think, talk about like where he's at, what he's thinking about and whatnot got me so excited for our conversation. I was like, wow, this is a really good prep prep for my interview <laughs> I'm about to have. Okay, so for anyone listening, today is all about AI and emerging technology, but I actually wanted to start with you, Saba. So if you were to think back to when you were in school as a student, wondering just how how you were as a student, but also were you always fascinated about technology and innovation or did that come later in life? You know, it's so interesting because first of all, I don't think anybody would recognize the Saba in school to the Saba they see now. Um, I did not like school at all. Like we actually moved to California when I was 10 from London. And I always say like school in London was so different. And then the natural Mm. question people will ask is why. And I feel like I don't have enough of an answer because I was so little. But the number one thing I can tell people is like, I was so happy. Like I loved learning and I loved school and I was really good at learning as well. Like my reading, my math, like all of your core skills, like I was really, really strong. And when we came to um, California, it just seemed like everybody was a little bit behind. And you know, when you're like 10 years old and whatnot, like those (laughs) things seem like, oh, I already did this in school. I already learned this. Like you're trying to get to the next thing, the next thing. And I think just that frustration and really just like losing my love for learning didn't come back until I say I was, and I was a good student. I was like APIB, all the things. But when I was 16, I took my GED and I went to community college. And that's really when I sort of like refound my love for learning. And it was really a big part of it was the agency, being able to choose your own classes, Mm. being able to choose your own schedule and things like that. And then the technology piece that's really interesting is in our like, and at home personally, I always use technology. Um, 
our dad like always was really into like video cameras. So like our whole lives are on video camera. Like we have videos of us from like, like those cassettes <laughs> and things like that. But we were always surrounded by a lot of technology. We had a computer when it was only like DOS and things like that. But I never really made the connection between teaching and learning and technology probably up until maybe um, iPads actually. Like we use the computer lab and we use things like that. But when I think about the kinds of things I was doing with technology, growing up, whether it was video games, whether it was, you know, like coding and computers or video and cameras, that connection didn't really materialize until I first um, got a class set of iPads. Wow. And is that something that you incorporated as a, as a science teacher? Or was that like later on when you started working with schools? Yeah, it was in my, so basically, so for the first five years of my career, I was like bouncing around places. And so in 2011, I made the switch to private and it just so happened that that year that school was thinking about going one-to-one with a device, like many schools were public private. And I got a class set of iPads and a class set of Chromebooks to pilot. And the iPads were obviously just like far more superior in terms of what they were able to do and the creativity. Mm -hmm. And especially somebody who had that experience with video in like my personal life, like being able to see like, wow, kids can just create all of these things. We don't have to go to the library anymore. Like the autonomy, again, that agency piece of being able to be mobile um, really, really, really shifted honestly, everything I did. I was always a really big believer in project-based learning. Like I did a lot of that, but it was so much work. All the poster boards, all the materials, all the things you're doing. (laughs) So the idea that the kids had this like one small tablet and could do all of it independently and I just had to guide them. I mean, I know a lot of people think making that transition is hard. To me, it was like, it was like easier for me (laughs) than it was more difficult. And so that I would say 2011, I would say it was really my turning point in really being able to just give kids my class more agency and autonomy over what they were doing. Oh, I love that. And it's so funny because you and I just talked about how I'm back in the classroom and I am now going to be doing project-based learning. And so I love that we're having this conversation because of course you want agency and you want that. But I also feel a lot of times with technology, there's just so much fear. So I wanted to first just for, you know, parents specifically, can we kind of just step back and define like what is artificial intelligence and like what are we kind of talking about today in terms of that and and schooling? Yeah, I would say artificial intelligence is really like what we're looking at in terms of the different capabilities of what machines are able to do. And I know that sounds kind of broad, but like AI is classified into so many different areas, right? So like the AI that most of us have been using for so many years that we're probably most familiar with are things like, you know, like Netflix, being able to have sort of that predictive analysis about your trends, your habits, and things like that to get those predictions to do, you know, things that are more personalized to you. But I think the AI that's kind of caught us, you know, a little off guard and maybe, you know, taken the world by storm is more generative AI, um, which basically means it's, you know, machines that are generating things that, you know, we really didn't think that a machine would probably be able to generate, right? I think we always really prided ourselves on creativity, writing, idea generation, you know, creating Mm -hmm. a poem, things like that. So to see a machine doing those kinds of things, that's the AI that probably most people have top of mind right now. Yeah. Okay. So I know in one of your keynote talks, you talk about this quote, which is like, the future is here. 
It's just not evenly distributed. And so before we go into the details, I'm just wondering like, like why is education kind of suffering when it comes to implementing that? Or is it that they're not and they're not necessarily behind, they just don't have the tools necessarily or someone guiding them of how to implement it effectively? Yeah, I think it's so many different things. But I think the first thing I would say is that like, it's so important for people to recognize that there are so many people that are doing things well. Like it's not that every single school is not keeping up. It's not that every single school isn't doing things. I think that's like a, there's, it's such a narrative in the media that like schools are behind and sure there's a lot of work to do. But I also think there's a lot of really, really, really great examples of great work mm. happening. I think it's not scaling. And so when we look Mm -hmm. at like, okay, why is this great work happening here? Like you think about like schools like Design 39, you know, which are, I I tend to lean more towards like the public school examples because other ones like people are like, well, they can do that because of that or they can do that because of this. So I like the examples where somebody can't be like, okay, like I can't find a fault for why they're able to do what they're doing. So I, I tend to lean a little bit more towards the public school model. But when you look at schools like Design 39, and it's possible, like these things are possible. So I think the challenge we have is, you know, even technology is available to so many people in so many ways. It's the ways in which we're working, the ways in which we're yeah. thinking. We're constantly layering new things on top of old mm-hmm. things instead of, you know, actually thinking about, well, do we really even need this anymore? Can we get rid of this and do this instead? And that's where I think it's become really challenging. We're trying to just layer and layer and layer. And it's like, mm. you know, what's that game? Um, oh, Jenga. It's like we're playing Jenga, you know? And it's like, we're building and building and building. You're like, you're going to pull one thing out and like everything's <laughs> just going to come collapsing down. But, and I think that's, that's the pressure people feel as well. You know, that anxiety mm. that builds up like, oh my God, if I take this piece out, what's going to happen? And so um, there's a really good book that Seth Godin just released. Um, It's called The Song of Significance. And it's all about like what he has a line in there. And it basically says, there's no longer any need to be a victim of a system that has outlived its usefulness. And I think that's what we need to do right now. We need to escape this victim mentality we have and think like, you know, this like we can't do anything because this is how it's always been done and figure out what are the structures and practices that will allow us to do different things in new ways? Beautiful. And, you know, it's so interesting you say that because a lot of times too, I don't know, you know, in the media, there was so much conversation, especially with ChatGPT, you know, our favorite one that everyone talks about. But there was this conversation where parents were having a lot of pushback, right? Of even having school like Design 39 or anything like that, kind of reinventing all of these systems. You know, Design 39 is probably, they're they're five minutes from where I live. But like, I know those families maybe are more open to it. But there was a conversation of, oh, if we, you know, if my kid uses ChatGPT at school, then, you know, they may plagiarize or there's all these fears. And, you know, obviously change management 101 is like humans resist change. We don't like it. <laughs> like, I think a lot of us still like do the same brush routine every day, you know, when we're brushing our teeth. Like how many of us really question if we're doing it effectively? So it, it's it's like part of who we are. But I guess my question to you is, what would you say to someone who is feeling that fear, right? Like as a parent, they are fearful of this new technology. What would be the first thing you would tell them to kind of tell them it's going to be okay? (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things I always say is like, you know, cultures of innovation begin with a culture of empathy, right? So Mm. let's first find out like, what makes you nervous? What are you worried about? But also what are you hopeful for 
what are your dreams? I will tell you like in my work with AI, the number one realization I've had is we have really forgotten how to dream. And it sounds very like, you know, I don't know what the word is, but it sounds very like generic maybe. But the fact that we as humans have not been practicing this dream muscle is one of the reasons I think why we're so fearful of what we have. Because I always go back to, okay, that's what that quote you shared, like the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. There's a lot of people who are excited about all the things they can now do that they previously couldn't Mm. because they've had these dreams for bigger things, more ambitious things. And I think because that's not something that we routinely practice across the board, again, at scale, if you are somebody who struggles how to dream of something bigger and better, Of course, this is going to feel intimidating to you because it feels like it's replacing you. And so one of the things, there's two things that I think are really interesting. So number one, really beginning to like peel back the layers. What's giving you anxiety? What's making you fearful? What's making you feel this way? Because once you start to get that kind of information, you begin to realize like, okay, it's not actually AI people are worried about. People are worried about like, well, what's going to happen now? And that's where the dream part becomes essential because when you then get people to think about like, okay, well, what are some of the things you wish you could do either for yourself, with your students, with your children that you just never have the time to do? Mm. And then once people start thinking about that, it's like, okay, if those are the things you wish you could do, how might we be able to use this technology to give you more time or more experiences that allow you to do those things? Because chances are these things you wish you could do are not replicable by machines. And so one of the questions I always like to start with when I'm working with groups is when thinking about your role, who do you want to be? And all of a sudden you hear the room just echo with like the most human qualities. I want to be someone who's inspirational. I want to be somebody who's trusted by others. I want to be a safe space for others to come to. One of my favorites was somebody said, I want to be that guy. And those are not things that machines can do. But if we're really honest with ourselves, how many times in a day do you really feel like you're being inspirational? How many times in a day do you really feel like you're creating spaces for people to come and feel that safety and that trust? Chances are it's very little. These are very aspirational things, qualities we have. And so if that's truly who we want to be, how do we create more time and space for that? Like nobody wants to be somebody who is grading standardized tests, right? That's not why anyone gets into something. Nobody mentions like, oh, I want to be somebody who, you know, um, is an AI detector to see how many kids are cheating and plagiarizing. Like nobody says things like that, but they are just initial fears because it's hard for us to imagine what else could be. Mm. The other question that I think is really beautiful for this moment that I wish more people engaged in is I think for so long, if you think about parents and children or families in society, technology has been such a a point of like tension between everyone, you know, like, how do I control this? How do I do this? Screen time, this, this, and that. It's, it's just been so much tension. This is truly one moment where every single generation is experiencing a really significant shift in technology in a completely different way. And it's such a beautiful moment to be able to have, I think, even as just like a parent, child, sibling, sibling, parent, you know, significant other cousin to sibling, whatever it is about, this is how it's impacting me and my life. And this is what I'm seeing from my lens. How do you feel about it from your lens? Because that parent who's seeing the world of work is seeing something from an industry perspective, whereas a kid is seeing something from a school perspective. But that industry person is seeing a skill being developed that's going to now be necessary that can help inform how they're learning and what they're doing. So 
I think there's just so many moments for us to pause and think about what do we want our world to look like? What do we want society to look like? What do we want families, teaching, learning? Like, what do we want life to look like as humans? Because I don't think many of us are very happy with the way things are, you know? And this is also a very contextual issue. Somebody in Finland where things like family, maternity leave, um, vacation time, and these things are valued, are going to have very different conversations and feelings around AI than a country like the United States, where unfortunately, in most cases, people are nothing but a number, right? In the corporate space, like how much, you know, overhead can I cut? What can I do? We don't value vacation time. We don't really value family time. Most people don't even get maternity leave in this country. There's like so many things like that, that will vary for people across the board. Mm -hmm. Um, But it really is a moment to think about what type of future we want to create, what type of society we want to create. Ah. Wow. I just want to take a moment because (laughs) what you just said is it's so inspirational, but I just love how human it is. You know, I say that because I feel sometimes when we're talking about, and I know you mentioned a lot of times about like the emerging technologies that happened in 2007, you know, all of these different social media platforms were coming out and it's nice to see it. It's not us versus the technology, right? And I feel nowadays a lot of times that's the conversation that's happening is that there's this machine and it's not human and it's like going to overtake us and it's going to become us and we must fear it as all costs, right? And unfortunately, it's message like that, even if that's not the truth. And so I love that you are dismantling that idea and going, hey, you know what? Like, this is not us versus the machines, right? Like, this is actually going to support human life. So I wanted to ask you, like, when you pose these questions in the organizations you work with, like, what are some answers, I guess, that come up of what people feel AI or, or technology can actually enhance their life with? Yeah. So that that's why I told you that's my realization that we've forgotten how to dream. That's where it comes from. Because when we yeah. do these things, there are those like blank stares or when we ask people even like, we have a, a framework we use with ChatGPT called Spark. And the reason we call it Spark is it's about how do you reignite that human spark and those ideas and leverage the machine to be able to help you. But when So Spark mm. is talk about your situation, your problem, your aspiration. If everything went well, what would it do? What's your highest vision and goal? Um, what are the results you want? And then the last one is Kismet, where we ask ChatGPT to like, you know, what am I missing? But when we get to that aspiration and we ask people, why does this this matter to you? If everything went really well, what would be true? It's a lot of times like people are like, oh, like, yeah, I don't really know. And so it's really a moment of reflection that we do so many things on auto. Like we don't even know why we're doing what we're doing. And that's why when (laughs) you ask people, is this what you want to do? They don't even know why. And so there's so much to process as you're going through it. But I would say the one thing that really is great is this is the number one thing I would say that I do see. Once we start putting those ideas in and they start getting the ideas from these AI tools, like, okay, like I'm a math teacher, like this is what I'm doing. Um, Or even let's use the example of a parent, you know, helping their child with their homework, you know, like the like ridiculous math homework problems that no one understands. Um, So like, you know, I'm a parent, I'm helping my kid with my math. This is the problem. What's the best way for me to explain this so that a five-year-old can understand it? And while that may have not initially clicked for you, the when people see the answer on a screen, 
all of a sudden, it's like this flood of ideas come to their head. They're not interested in the computer's answer because they've got so many of their own ideas. 10 seconds ago, those ideas didn't exist. And now all of a sudden they just came out of nowhere, which goes to show like there are a lot of things within us. We just need these like sparks to help us bring those ideas to the forefront. And then we build on them. You can then have that conversation with your child, explain it to them. They may say something that triggers another thought for you. And it kind of goes on and on and on from there. That's, I would say, the biggest thing that we see. Um, I would say the other thing that we see is, you know, I was telling you, I was just talking to my, um, my cousin and he was, he, he was so anti using these AI tools. He's like, well, my teacher told me I'm just going to become more dumb if I use them. And I was like, well, that's not really true. Like, you know, because how, how valuable was what you're doing to begin with? Like, he's so smart. He's so creative. And one of the reasons we were sitting here, he's like, he's like, I need to apply for an internship, but I don't really have any projects to show. I'm like, so you're in like your second year of college and you don't really feel like you have a lot of projects to show, right? Like every single kid should be graduating with like this extensive portfolio of real world work. There's no reason why that shouldn't be happening. And so the fact that like now he's like thinking about that and whatnot, it was like, okay, like how could you use, if you had had these tools or you had been doing this work, what would that have meant? And so what it basically came down to was that, you know, he was like, well, like if kids use it, then they're just going to be cheating. And so it was like, if, if we center the conversation on cheating, all that will happen is kids will get better at cheating because that's the problem you've given them to solve. Right. But if you give them something else to put their critical thinking and attention towards, they'll put their attention towards that. Whereas if all we want school to become, because if people approach AI in schools, from that cheating lens, you are fighting a losing battle. We know AI detectors don't work. Kids are going to get savvier. Like that's the problem you're giving them to solve now. How can you prevent somebody from identifying you as a cheater? Which means you've also given the kid the identity of a cheater. Like that's what we're leading from. Like just overall from a cultural environmental perspective, it's just not a good idea. And so there's so many more opportunities for us to really lean into what skills are important and what skills matter and go from there. Yeah. And I, and you know, as we talk about, it's like 42, what 42% of the workforce is going to be automated. And so I think it's also that thing. And when I went to business school, we used to talk about that. It's like, it's here, you know, it's not, it's not going anywhere. And it has been here, you know, look at our cars, you know, there's already a lot of AI functionality happening in it. You know, there are already, you know, some restaurants have robots serving, you know, there it's, it is actually happening. I think it was interesting that when some of these technologies came out and these AI functionalities, how there was kind of uproar, even though it had already kind of been a part of society in a subtle way for a pretty long time. Yeah. And I think that's where we go back to that quote that you shared earlier, like the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. It's like, you know, the people who have access, like that's, I learned that the hard way. I really feel like, you know, in my own school experience, I didn't get a good, I didn't get good exposure to emerging technologies. Like, I feel like I became a teacher and I was being prepared to teach for like the last decade. No one really talked to me about all these different technologies that were emerging or what my teaching career would look like or what things I would have to be good at. I had to figure it all out myself. But the people who know that and have that knowledge and understanding of emerging technologies from before they can become mainstream, they have an ability to make 
not only a lot more money, but also a greater impact because they have more choices about the type of work it is they can do. Yeah. And I I guess um, I'm wondering is like for you, when you think about kind of the emerging technologies and what you wish you had, what what skill sets do you feel kids actually need in this modern day around either utilizing AI or the skill sets they need to cultivate to coincide with it? I would say the number one thing is being able to solve problems. That to me is the biggest one. Like, do you have an understanding? Mm. And you know, this isn't even like a new skill set. Like, I feel like I that I learned this <laughs> yeah. from Seth Godin's book, um, Lynchpin, like back in like 2010. That idea of are you able to, and these are very uniquely human things. Like when when you're in an environment, whether it's an organization at your company, even at home, wherever you are, what are those insights and observations that allow you to gather information about the problem that needs to be solved or the opportunity that can be uncovered. I feel like in life, if you have these two skills, I know how to solve your problem or, hey, there's something we can do here. That is the number one skill set you need just to be successful in life, let alone work. And people who know how to articulate that, people who know how to showcase that, I think that is just super, super critical. And actually, that's not even like me. So like Seth Godin is like one person. I feel like so many people talk about these things, but the number one paper I encourage everyone to kind of go and read, it's so sad actually that this is what I reference. It's from a decade ago, 10 years ago. So you would think that the world would be in a place where we were not referencing things from a decade ago, that a decade ago, Frank Levy um, from MIT and Richard Murnane from Harvard wrote a paper, it's free online, called Dancing with Robots, where they said in the world that we're in right now, like back, they were talking in 2013, that they basically said in a world with AI, there are two things that will make humans unique from machines. Number one, your ability to solve unstructured problems. And if we look around us in the world, like there is no shortage of problems that are just very difficult to solve that usually require the number two element, they say, which is complex communication. You know, I need to articulate an idea. I need to gather consensus. You disagree, you disagree, you disagree. How am I going to bridge that divide so we can work together to move forward on an an issue? These are two things that machines just cannot do yet, at least. And those are the two skills they identified as being most important for humans to leverage. And so this is, I think, just a really important, this is where to me, the parent and school divide becomes so interesting. Because I think if parents really thought about the skills that are relevant in the workplaces they're in, they would advocate more for like, why is my child doing this and not this? And I think in schools, we spend a lot of time talking about skills that are important. And I don't know, like, you know, I mean, you know, everyone has their own purpose and reason for doing everything, but I really believe it's time to stop talking about the skills we need because there's so much research and so much data that tells us this information and start really thinking about the experiences we create that are going to help people get there. Ah. Uh. You're speaking to my heart and, you know, not like I wrote a book on this, but, <laughs> you know, it is, it, it, I was actually, as you were talking, I was like, wow, what does it take for, and we're going to get into the organizations you work with because I'm very interested to see what people have done successfully. And also I was thinking of just what it takes for this to thrive, right? For, for us to be in that space where kids, kiddos can cultivate these skills. And I think there is a mindset shift that needs to happen before the action even takes place 
place, right? Which is like, hey, the teacher doesn't have to be the disseminator of information, right? Or like you, your kiddo doesn't need to have certain problems on their desk. And then there's only one way to solve it because right then you're negating, you're kind of actually creating a skill set that a machine can do, right? They, that machine will be able to solve that problem just like your kid. And so what else are we doing to kind of build that critical thinking and, you know, doing the designs and the creativity and leveraging all of that. And also, unfortunately, so many times in the traditional public school, and I'm, I'm going to say not all, right? There are many who are very innovative in what they're doing. And also, I think there is still this mindset of kind of an education, which I find fascinating where it's like, well, I went through this. <laughs> so you need to go through this, right? Like I sat and did the 50 problems every day. So like, we're, we're going to do that Or it's, I advocated for this at my kid's school and I got so much pushback that like now I'm just going to keep my mouth shut, right? So Um, so that just comes up for me as mindset. And I don't know if you disagree or agree with that, but that's just something coming up. (laughs) I think it goes back to literally those two skills. Like it's it's really hard to change things, but it comes like, I mean, you just kind of laid it out perfectly. Like I think also when you're trying to talk about something new, when you don't have a visual or context for something, you can't imagine. Mm. That's why I tell you, I literally keep coming back to, wow, we are really, we don't have enough experience with imagination and dreaming. And if you don't have enough experience with these two things, it's not that you want somebody to do the 50 problems the way you did it because you feel like people should go through the same torture as you. It's in your head. That's how you became successful. And so it's coming from a place of love, but because the context is missing sometimes from examples even of like, oh, wow, this is what people are doing or, oh, wow, this is how things are changing or, you know, five years from now, this is going to look like this. It's again, if you can't imagine that, you can't plan for it or believe it. So I, I find that to be a really, but that's why I'm such a big advocate as well for people sharing their stories, because when you share a story, um, yeah. of both the good and the bad, not just the pretty picture at the end, people begin to see, oh yeah, I was at this part. Like people are at different parts of your story. And so when we share more about our journey, then people can resonate with like the different parts of where you're at. We can help people. Nobody's experience, like even when we did the research on Design 39, the message was never, you should be Design 39. But I hope that people look at that and believe, wow, if they could do it, why can't I? And what is that going to look like for me? And how can we use those same processes and that formula to sort of create something that 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 is that we need and is meaningful to our community? Yeah, wow, that's beautiful. So what I'm hearing is actually kind of, and I love it's kind of the identity piece, right? Is like, okay, this made me successful, yes. And what do I wish that I got? that I had to learn as I got older, but I wish I cultivated at a younger age, I guess, I guess is what I'm getting. <laughs> yeah. no, And that's and when we have conversations around those topics versus the technology, like I feel like too often we lead with the technology and that's what puts people on edge and makes them anxious because they don't know enough about it. But when you create a conversation around what you just shared, now people are so much more open-minded and now you've given them a vision for something they want. And I think that's really important. I think when people want something and they own it and they have that agency over going about and and articulating the problem, 
now they're also motivated mm-hmm. to solve that problem because now you've put a desire within them. And I think that's that's the most, that's why we say the empathy piece is so critical because if you can get to what people are frustrated by, but also what mm-hmm. their hopes and dreams are, they're more motivated to go out and find those answers versus you having to do all the work. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Simon Sinek's why, right? It's, it, it comes down to yourself and, and what your why is. And, and I also wonder, and if I think back and, you know, I've studied, you know, Uber and Airbnb and all that, I think they did a great job with that, right? It wasn't a pain point, but there was a human aspect of it because none of us were going to get into a stranger's car, right? But here we are <laughs> tapping our phones to get rides every day. So it is fascinating that they were even able to shift a cultural norm that lasted for so many years. And now here we are. Um so I wanted to like, okay, so we're, we're the dreamers now. We're the, you know, we're imagining and we need that visual. So can you kind of explain of kind of your success stories of how you've seen AI and technology play out um, in any school that you feel has done a, a great job with that? Yeah, for sure. You know, I'll, I'll actually change the example a little bit because one of the things with AI is obviously it's so new. So we're still watching, we're still seeing what people are doing. But one of the things that I tell people mm-hmm. And we saw this a lot when iPads came out, like if we were to go back like a decade or so, is when a new technology comes out, we're always like, oh no, what is AI going to do? What is the iPad going to do? And people's initial response is, well, it's so new. We don't know what to do. But when you look at the research around how we learn best, um, good teaching practices, good pedagogical practices, those things have been around for decades. And when we ground ourselves in that, it can be an iPad, it can be AI, it can be whatever comes tomorrow. It doesn't matter because our practice is grounded in research and, you know, development of how we teach and learn best, right? Good pedagogical practices. Those don't change. And so the technology just allows us to accelerate our ability to do that type of work because it's hard without the technology to do those kinds of things. Like we were talking about projects earlier. It's hard without the technology makes it easier for us. AI makes it easier for us, um, but the practices don't really change. So I always encourage people to not think so much about the technology, but think about the practice you want to do. What are the skills you want your kids to have? What are the experiences and how can the technology support you? So I always say one of my favorite examples, like I've worked at so many places like Apple, like, you know, like um, just so many different companies, so many different schools. But my favorite, favorite example is the University of Southern California. And you would think like, oh, that's higher education. So, you know, it's different, but you can take those strategies and apply them anywhere. And I tell people like, even with AI, like that's the kind of stuff you want to be doing. So there's a couple really key lessons we learned there that I feel like anyone could implement to be successful with AI. The first one is empathy. Don't try to create all the policies yourself, ask people what they're frustrated with, what they need and what they, what they want to see. So when we think about right now, even people who are thinking about AI policies in schools, instead of trying to create all the rules and do all the work yourself behind closed doors, ask the kids, engage in conversations. First of all, just ask them how many of them have even used it? Because these assumptions that we bring to the table put us on a path to creating a solution that is where we're not solving the right problem. And so when we, so one of the first things we did before even, you know, introducing technologies, we asked kids like, how many of you have devices? Um, er Everyone had devices, not just even one, people had multiple devices. And then we asked people, how many of you have been taught how to use this device in a teaching and learning setting? And the answer then was never. 
So you've got all this technology mm. that they've never been taught how to use it in a teaching and learning environment. So the, yeah, they can scroll Instagram and they can do all those things, but not know, and us having that knowledge allowed us to then design an orientation program. So then it becomes like, okay, like how do you like to learn best? And the number one request they had was don't teach us content and new technology at the same time. If we're going to use new technology, fine, but I want to learn it before school starts. And so that's that's a really important data point, like, you know, that we did not have before. So the point is, instead of us coming up with the whole orientation launch plan, just asking a few of those questions allowed us to create a better solution to the problem we were trying to solve. The second really big one I would say is, and this is, I think, so relevant for right now, it's not always about throwing everything out. Sometimes it's a small tweak to what it is mm. that you're so one of the first assignments that the students used to work on was a, uh, a research paper. And the goal of the research paper was to help the kids develop like empathy with the communities they were going to be working in as healthcare providers. So they each got assigned a different community in Los Angeles and they do this like long research paper. But instead of actually going out into the communities to gather the research, most of them were using Google and they were just getting all their answers from there and putting this paper together. So we tweaked the, the prompt instead of changing the whole assignment. There was value in the research. There was value in the writing. But with the technology, we could do more. So instead, what we did was we asked the kids, if this community had a message for healthcare providers, what would that message be? You couldn't Google that answer in 2013-14, and you can't chat GPT that answer in 2023. And so when we sometimes just change the prompt or slightly change the task, the experience becomes completely different. Mm. It doesn't mean that we don't need to write. We didn't say research wasn't valid, writing isn't valid, like let's take it all out. Just let's add another layer that the computer can't do for them, that they have to do that makes it more human and allows us to create a better, I mean, that's so much more purpose behind that. And so instead of just talking about the research now what they were learning, they were talking about things they were seeing and experiencing, like gentrification, the impact of politics on people and the impact that that had on healthcare. Like the conversation just became so much more real and broad. So I would say those were probably like my two favorites. So that those are the two pieces of advice I would have. I would say, number one, like, don't try to figure it out alone. Like ask all your stakeholders and, you know, get those, get that data. And then number two, think about what is the next layer of this assignment? It's not that writing isn't valid. It's not that research isn't valid. We can do more what would more look like for you? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for any parent out there, you know, what would you say is something they should maybe expect this school year when it comes to AI? And, you know, how do they kind of equip themselves for what could be when, they're, when their child walks into a classroom? I would say like the number one thing I would hope for at this point is just an open mind. I think if you're walking into a space and the message is, we're banning this. We're not using it. Like we are seeing, especially at the high school level, we're seeing a lot of like, um, I would say very like that tension again. Okay, fine. You can use it if you want, mm. but you're going to fail at life. That, that's just such a, that's, that's like not the message we want to be sending. Those aren't the kinds of relationships we want to be building. And <laughs> the reality is like, they're not going to fail at life because again, I, I always go back to like, even if that's the message you send to them, they're probably going to use it anyways. The problem they're solving is how do I become better at cheating? right? How do I become better at being able to trick the system? So either way, they're engaging in problem solving. It's just, is that really the problem you want them to be spending their time on? So it's kind of just up to you. But I think that's something I would look for, like people who are talking that way and that's the culture. 
Um, obviously, like we talked about earlier, that also comes from fear, but I would say that's something I would look for. I would look for an open mind. I think that's the biggest thing. That's the best thing you can ask for from people right now, an open mind and training. And I think this is one really unique opportunity where parents are experiencing the exact same thing probably in their workplaces, bringing in that data, bringing in that conversation. Hey, here's what we're being trained on. Parents are being trained too, the same way teachers are, the same way kids are, the same way administrators are. Everyone's being trained right now on this. So leveraging and pulling that knowledge and creating and talking about what we want next is it's such a gift. We've never had that before. So that's what I would say. Those are the two things, like an open mind and conversation. I love that. And you know, it's so funny you said that it's like reverse psychology where you say no and you know, the kid's going to do it anyways because you said no, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, with jailbreaking and all these things, all you get yeah. on the internet and YouTube, it's just more ways to hack a system. So it's like, right. where do you want them to spend their time and energy? Like you literally are the ones deciding. Yeah. And it's so funny actually, because I was in a conversation funny enough with, uh, you know, the staff from USC and someone who had grown up when the technology, when internet came out and he said, he's like, we were talking about AI. And the first thing he said is, well, when I was in school, they banned the internet. Like when the internet came out, it was kind of the same sensation of unfortunately, like the banning and stuff. And like, I mean, how much, you know, students everywhere using Google as their main source of searching and researching. And so I think that's also such a great analogy because we now have that data. We have the visual. We don't have to dream about that anymore. We're just now having something happening again. Um, but it's a very similar to that time period. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, another really good analogy is social media. We also like, we forget we've had social media now for almost 20 years, 20 years. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw, I think it was like two months ago or so the surgeon general, like the UF, like surgeon general was like, social media is like bad for kids' mental health and we need to do something about it like 20 years later when now the solution is really out of control. Like it would be so hard now to go back and try to undo the damage that it's done or teach like an entire generation now that's just grown up a certain way, different practices. And I always tell people, if we treat AI the way we treat social media, you will wish for this time this time where you think mental health is such a challenge and all these issues are so awful, our politics, you know, and whatnot, you start adding AIs, deep fakes and all this into the mix. You will like, you'll wish for this time that you think is so awful. Mm, yes. I, 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 yeah, I love that. And I, you mentioned kind of what parents should expect. I guess my other question is like, how should parents be having conversations with their kids when it comes to AI? Is it similar to social media or does it look differently? I mean, obviously it's going to look different. When I say it's similar, I mean, we didn't teach people how to use social media effectively. We yeah. never even addressed it. Like there's no, like, it's not a mainstream thing. You would think 20 years later, we would yeah. have it as a very embedded natural part of school, how we teach, how we learn, how we work. People are figuring it out by themselves every single day. And if you do the same with AI, I'm just, I just say AI is so much more powerful. And social media at the end of the day is an A. Like any technology we have is not like a living technology. Whereas AI is kind of like a living technology. It's emerging, it's changing. The more data it gets, the more it's adapting. It can do things that constantly surprise us. Like we open Instagram, we know what to expect. The effect it has on us varies, but you know what to expect when you open a social media app. Sure, there might be an update or whatnot, but it's not like 
wowing us like with different things that it can do all of a sudden or these different tricks that it can do all of a sudden. But um, it, but it's powerful in terms of the technology. So the point in the analogy isn't so much that the same. It's more that if we don't teach people how to use it effectively, we mm. don't see those consequences until much later. And then it's very difficult to go back and be able to rectify those things because they've impacted our personalities, how we communicate Mm. and how we do things have been taught a certain way that are difficult to undo. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So we're getting to the, to the end of our episode. And so I just wanted to ask you, is there anything else that's coming up for you when it comes to, you know, education and, and AI that, that you want to share right now? I don't think we answered your last question. So I would just say like the last thing is just like have conversations with each other about what you're seeing, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. I think that's like one of the best ways to begin to just have aha moments. I feel like there's so much to process right now. It's so hard to just like shift the way we work and learn almost overnight because we haven't been keeping pace with the technology. So for those people who have been, this is not really that big of a shock. Like it's another cool thing you have. But for people who have not been able to keep pace or their businesses, schools have not, this is this is really, really shocking. And it's also not really something they can control. And so I would just really encourage people just to have conversations, especially when you said like parents and kids. I think parents have so much exposure in the real world. Like I'm always having conversations with my dad about his business or how he's doing things. And there's so much for me to learn. Like my dad's not an expert in AI and like all these, but he has so much expertise in other areas that are more human, you know, because they didn't grow up with that kind of technology. They did business in a different age. They worked in a different age. And a lot of those skills are actually more relevant now, you know, that we're just so normal for them. So not having to feel like we're competing to be the same in our use of technology, but rather thinking this is the expertise I bring to the table. This is where you are. What do we learn from each other? Like I always say like, you know, my two younger sisters are like in their early thirties. I will never communicate the way they do. Like the way they message, like if I want to get a hold of one of them, I have to Snapchat them. Like it's like they just respond differently. They communicate differently. And it can be so frustrating. But I always say, like, I'll never communicate the way they communicate. Like we're just a different generation. Yeah. Same with, you know, my parents, like we're just a different generation. But if we were to start competing with each other or getting angry because, well, you don't do it this way because that's how I do it, well, no one's gonna want to talk to you. <laughs> so just being able to recognize that those differences exist in how we communicate and how we, in our relationship with our technology, helps build that empathy for, okay, maybe this isn't the best thing to do. Maybe you should do this this way. Or the things we can learn from each other help us create, I think, stronger solutions. Yeah. It's so funny you say that. I feel like my mom, like for the life of her, never looks at her text messages, right? Because she just didn't grow up with that. She's like, if you need to get a hold of me, like call me. And I'm like, mom, I'm at the grocery store. I just need to know if we need yogurt, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Just look at your text message. I sent it to you five minutes ago. And then she'll respond like two days later, like, yes, we need yogurt. I'm like, mom, (laughs) wrong timing, you know? So definitely the generational gap. But, you know, I also love that you said we are learners. We're all learning together. And I think also kids are teaching their parents like about this technology. And so what you mentioned, just be open-minded and and listen. (laughs) And I will say, if you can cultivate that in your child, workplaces are looking for that too. I think so many young people feel like I need to get to this title, I need to get to this position, and then I'll share my ideas. But one of the greatest opportunities young people have is 
the same older generation is in your workplaces as well. And they are also yeah. looking for an answer is that they just don't have because it's not how they think. It's not how they do things. But for kids, it's how they do things. But that contextualization isn't there for this is how you apply it to academics. This is how you apply it to your professional life. But that is a huge opportunity for young people today to go in and be able to help people think about not only just the technology, but even just what does my generation need and how do we work better together? Oh, I love that. Um, okay. So my last question for you is because you just talked so much about dreaming and imagination. So Saba, what's, what's your dream when it comes to, you know, your work and, and what you're doing now? And even if it's not related to that, I would say maybe right now, my dream is just like, I, I just hope more people are optimistic about what could be. I think, you know, we're so like, there's just so much tension and anxiety that I feel in so many places that I go, but it's so interesting how many, like within 30 minutes, how quickly people can change from one perspective to another, just because they have some inspiration. Or I used to really think it was silly. Like, why do you want like 30 minutes of inspiration or why this, like I should be teaching you strategies or you should really have this. But I've really noticed that we, we just need so much, which is actually really interesting because the number one thing people say when I ask them, who do you want to be? They say inspirational. And so I think like, that's my one thing right now is like, how do we help people become more optimistic and how do we inspire one another more? Because I've noticed once you do that, people honestly kind of figure out the rest themselves. And so it also alleviates the burden. So I'd say that's my dream. I want, I want us mm. to be more optimistic about what could be and really flex that dream muscle. Wow. Well, I have to say that I'm leaving very inspired. <laughs> so you are very inspirational. And as someone who also came in with her qualms as an educator around AI, I, I feel excited. And, you know, I, I appreciate just feeling more open-minded. Even it's like you just may not know it yet and you may not know what it looks like, but, but there is a way and, and you'll find it alongside everyone else. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yay. Yay. Well, thank you so much. Well, good luck to you as well. You're going back to an amazing school. I'm excited oh, to hear your you. stories. Thank you. I am so thrilled. Um, yeah. And I just, I know we'll stay in touch. I wanted to say if someone wanted to reach out to you, like where can they find you um, to stay connected? Yeah. I always tell people the website, it's like a choose your own adventure, like designingschools.org and then whatever social media channel or anything you enjoy. <laughs> okay. Great. Thank you so much. Well, I mean, I'll make sure to also post it in the show notes so everyone can check it out. Um, thank you for an amazing conversation. And I, I'm sure we'll be talking more about this as more things emerge. Awesome. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for showing up as a parent, but not only just for yourself, but for your child as you consciously make shifts for their schooling. To connect with me, follow at The Parent Classroom on Instagram and join my email newsletter to stay tuned for more resources for you and your child. If you are interested in consciousness and education, you can find my book, Raise Your Hand, A Call for Consciousness and Education, now on Amazon. Till next time, bye.